McCartney, who's uh, the foreign editor of the Times, um, but was for uh, some years, between 2005 and 2011, the bureau chief for the Times in Beijing, uh, covering China. She's been there twice before, I think both times for Reuters. So she's a considerable China expert. Uh, and she was also, which she may or may not tell you, the most hated woman in China. <laughs> uh, must, must be a high accolade given that there were other women in China who did horrible things. Um, she will, may tell you what horrible things she did. But mostly she'll be talking about how to report on China. And we've talked here a bit before about um, what's been happening in China with journalists in the last month or so in Guangzhou in the <clears throat> southern weekend. Um, and it would be very good indeed to have someone of James Caliber uh, talking about it as well. So, Jane, many thanks for coming. Over to you. It's a pleasure. Um, sorry. The thing that I wanted to say first is that actually reporting from China is pretty much the same as reporting from any other country. I think you know we imbue it with this mystique because it's China and it must be more difficult because you've got obviously the language problems and you've got the issues of uh, the fact that the country isn't particularly open, um, as we know, you know, particularly before 1978, but even after 1978, China's not hugely open to foreign journalists. So that does increase the challenge. And I must say that since I first went there in the 1980s, the changes in the way you recover China have been extraordinary. Not as extraordinary as the changes that we've seen in China itself, but still pretty dramatic. Um, and I think one of the main changes that we're seeing currently is social media. And I wanted to just say to you, or ask whether anybody knows what is the um, great or the biggest single disaster involving children that we have seen in the world. Does anyone know, anyone from China know what that biggest single disaster where the most children were killed? Earthquake. No, it was a fire in Xinjiang. Oh, Karamai. And it's, it's a little, it's an interesting story. So that was in, I think, 1996. And um, I picked up, well, I, my assistant picked up the newspaper, one newspaper, and on the front page, in the bottom left-hand corner, there was a little report saying there's been a fire in a cinema with a lot of children and an unknown number of casualties. And I said to her, phone now, because it's very unusual to see a disaster in a Chinese newspaper. So I, I had to assume that this was going to be quite serious. And in those days, there was no direct telephone. So she went through the operator. And um, my system always has been that you call the local media, because the local media are the people who know the most and possibly will talk to you. So she got through to the local television station. And they put her straight through to the um, head of the station. And she said to him, I hear there's been a, a, a fire in a cinema. And this senior official, a man, started crying and hung up the telephone. At that point, you know that you have a very important story. And it took us probably five hours to get a lot of detail. And then it was all shut down. There was nothing more to be had. Um, but that couldn't happen now. Because now you have social media, you've all heard of Weibo, and the amount of detail and stories that come out on that. And while you can't use Weibo as a serious source, because you need to verify, it's a really amazing tip-off service and discussion that 
now exists in China, which 25 years ago, 20 years ago, I couldn't have dreamt of. So that's sort of one of the changes, and I'm going to sort of look at those changes. Um, I will just take up from what John said about being <coughs> the most hated woman in China. And that is really all about reporting from China and the different views that you have to cope with outside China and inside China, how your reporting is seen inside and outside. And this is the most sort of emotive issue for a foreign reporter in China. And this is why I was named it. It was all a very silly thing, and I can tell you later if you're interested. But it was really about Tibet. And when you're writing about Tibet for a foreign audience, there's any number of cliches with which the West looks at Tibet. And also, the view inside China of, of what is Tibet and its importance. So you are struggling to find a way to write that story which doesn't play into those cliches that the West has, but also doesn't play into the cliches that China has. And also, how you get the information about something so far away and so difficult to access. So these probably look like Chinese police, and so do these. But these are not Chinese police. This is a, a play put on by Tibetan exiles. And it's the kind of picture photo that gets journalists, foreign journalists, into a lot of trouble. Because it's, it's possible to make a mistake and you think, oh my goodness, this is you know, Chinese police who are um, beating monks. I mean, if you look carefully at the picture, you can see that it clearly can't be um, in China because they're carrying Tibetan flags and there's a band in China. But there are pictures where it's harder to tell. So covering Tibet is, is so difficult because the, the outside world thinks that if you write something that's positive about what's happening in Tibet, you must be on the side of the Chinese. And the Chinese think that if you're writing something that is not positive about Tibet, then you're obviously an enemy. And it's very hard to tread that line on this. I mean, this was um, the riots in 2008 when there was an, an enormous amount of publicity in the foreign media about the amount of the size of the crackdown, the number of people who'd been killed in the crackdown. And this, when you see a photo like this of the Chinese army, when they were the army, um, cracking down, you, you, know, you do start to wonder. But that's, a, that's from the riot, and that's a Tibetan attacking a, a Han Chinese, an ethnic Tibetan against a Han Chinese. So there was clearly something going on, on uh, that was very serious, involving ethnic tension. And so you, you know, you're desperately trying to find ways to write that and to not take sides. Um, so this was a photo that was extremely controversial because what does it show exactly? So this is a little Tibetan boy and, what are, and there, these look like Chinese police. Are they arresting him? Presumably that's what it looks like. And there was a lot of publicity about this particular photograph. In fact, he was being taken away from the scene of violence and he wasn't arrested and it was nothing like that. And, but it looks like that. And that's one of the problems of Tibet. And also you have no access. And I think this is where China sort of 
gets it wrong on foreign journalists, and I'll talk about this later on, is how if you get access and you can go in and you speak to people and you see the story on the ground, you're going to have at least a chance of getting closer to what really happened. Whereas if you're doing it you know, from far away, you're not going to. This was um, this is a photo of people who were actually who were actually shot by um, Chinese government forces in in the Sichuan area of China, which is a Tibetan ethnically Tibetan area. But you can't get there to verify that. I mean, for all I know, that could have been staged. I, I think that from looking at it, it probably wasn't. But it's just incredibly hard to verify. Um, I like this photograph. The, the Chinese have obviously put it out many, many times because it shows the extent of the violence. You know, there's a, a Tibetan with a sword. And there is no doubt that, that there were deaths um, in Tibet. Um, and there was no doubt that there was <laughs> quite a crackdown. And the trouble is that foreigners were allowed in. And you'll all recognize the Al Jazeera um, uh, microphone in the corner. And China did think, OK, we've got to rely on some foreign journalists, and the whole thing was set up. And they went into the main temple in the center of Lhasa, and the monks didn't follow the script and started weeping and crying. And it was terribly embarrassing for the authorities who'd set this up. But you, know, it was, you were able to get a sense of the level of tension that you had between <laughs> these two people, th these two ethnic groups. Um, this is an, an actual photograph of um, police cracking down. Um, but th and then after 2008, when, when this happened and the riots <coughs> in fact calmed down, the Tibet issue hasn't gone away. And it remains incredibly hard to cover. And I've been to Tibet several times. I've, I've been very fortunate. And you, know, you, you speak to Tibetans. Or, or monks, and they are distraught. They want the return of the Dalai Lama. They feel that they are under pressure, which in recent years I think there's probably little doubt that they have been. Because if you resort to this type of tactic, you're probably fairly miserable with your lot in life. But for us, it's very hard to go and talk to them. One, one of the ways that um, I found to try to speak to people was through Skype. And there's two different Skypes in China. There's the international Skype, and then there's another Skype that is hosted by something called Tom.com. And if you use the one that's not hosted by Tom.com, it's apparently much harder to, to listen in. Uh, that's what we like to believe. And so you would try to get in touch with monks or Tibetans on Skype so that you could actually glean some kind of information as to how they were feeling, what was actually happening, whether there had been a crackdown in that, in, in that city. But the trouble is that you are talking to people who are clearly very unhappy. So how much can you believe of what they're telling you? you and so you're getting these two, and then you speak to the officials who say nothing's happening at all. So you're caught between these two different stories of what is going on and trying to put together a report based on those, those two different tales that you're hearing um, and, trying, and trying to judge who is going to be telling you something, some approximation that is closer to the truth, closer 
to the facts. And when you do write a story about something like this and about how unhappy people in Tibet are, you get into trouble with the Chinese authorities who, can, who accuse you of um, manipulating, of being prejudiced, biased, and you, you can, so one of the things that you need to do is to at least, is to make sure that you give the Chinese government its chance to talk about things. You know, you always need to have their side of the story. I remember once at Reuters, um, a story was written about the Panshin Lama, and no, no reference was made in that story to what the Chinese said, the Chinese government said about the Panjin Lama. And the foreign ministry who um, are in charge of foreign journalists in China went berserk. But when Reuters refiled the story with a no comment from the foreign ministry, that was fine. Um, so these are, that's one of the most difficult and emotive issues to cover in China because you, you also have an, an issue in the West of if, if you, as I said, if, you know, if you're writing something that sounds relatively positive about the amount of um, investment that the Beijing government has put into Tibet, or you write about some of the issues involving Tibetans and the fact that they may not necessarily um, have uh, um, opportunities to get jobs compared with Chinese immigrants, this, this also can make you very unhappy with the outside, can make the outside world very unhappy with what you're writing. So, but I, you know, obviously, as you know, there is an, a responsibility to try to to get it as close as possible to being right, and that's why I was the most hated woman in China because stories were written, and these were attributed well, to all the foreign media. But uh, it, this, this, when that happened, I mean was, uh, I didn't even know, it was, it was on Sina, and a colleague of mine <laughs> called me up at about 8 o'clock in the morning and said, do you know that when you look at the Sina website for the top item, it's you, <laughs> and it was, the, you know, it was the top most hated, everything, and, and I went through it and there were thousands and thousands of comments about how terrible I was, and it was because the Times had been mentioned by the Foreign Ministry in a briefing, and this just, it took off um, across the internet in China, which <coughs> is a wonderful thing to happen, because people are, Ch people in China now have far more access to what, to what is going on around them than they did in the 90s. So I got all sorts of hate calls, and we're going to come and kill you, and it became an issue that the, that the embassy had to take up um, with the foreign ministry because it was, they, they felt that perhaps it was possible to be under threat because it's not great to get death threats on, even if they're only on the telephone. But that's the level of, of emotion that you're dealing with on an issue like, like Tibet. And this is perhaps the most emotive part of it, is how do you <coughs> this man? For the Chinese, he's called a, a jackal in, in Mark's clothing. Uh, for the West, of course, he's this—he's a smiling, benevolent winner of the Nobel Peace Prize. Very, very hard to cover because maybe it's somewhere in between the two of them, as as many things are in journalism. Uh, but you, 
Uh, and it's quite fun to report when the Chinese do call him a jackal in monk's clothing because it, it just, you know, it takes off across the world and you have this wonderful phrase that is created by the Chinese um, propaganda apparatus, which is propaganda is the correct translation, although China now prefers to call it the Ministry of, of Publicity as its English translation. It's not all difficult um, and necessarily sensitive covering China. There are some stories which just come at you and they are absolutely clear. This is the Sichuan earthquake. And it's the first time in covering China since 1985 that <coughs> such access to a story. And it really ran out of control of the propaganda officials. And it ran out of control because the Chinese journalists were on the scene immediately covering it. And they, they, were, just, they were unstoppable. And by the time sort of 24 hours into the disaster, the propaganda authorities tried to crank up, and I'm sure that the Chinese journalists here will know more about this than I do, it was already way too late. All the foreign media were on the scene. Hundreds, if not thousands, of Chinese media were on the scene. And the authorities basically just had to let go and allow this coverage. And for decades, this hadn't been the case, like, like the school fire, well, the cinema fire, where all these children were killed, there was no coverage of that. And on the second day, um, the next day after the fire, uh, I remember calling up, um, Saturday morning, very cold, uh, and I called up a local newspaper and, and said to a journalist, you know, can you tell me something about the fire, are there funerals, what's happening today? And the journalist said to me, I can't tell you anything. There's a blackout imposed by the authorities, by the government, but everyone here is so desperately, desperately unhappy and they want to have their story told that I'm going to tell you everything. And here it all comes. Um, and that was extraordinary, but it, it doesn't, you know, this was, it didn't have to be like that. And for a story like this, it wasn't like that. There were, it was a story when China could sort of relate to the rest of the world, the world could relate to China. There was an, a huge wave of sympathy. Frankly, it couldn't have come at a better time for the government just after Tibet, just before the Olympic Games. And you had this human disaster with 90,000 people killed. It's one of those extraordinary numbers that you can hardly compute in your head. And the authorities allowed us all in. And there were three, sort of mainly three television stations in Sichuan that were covering this. And it was interesting as the days went by to watch how these television stations reported the story. Because you had one that was really a government uh, station. And then you had the city that the the um, Chengdu government, Chengdu television station, which of course is a government station, but it was much more uh, open about what was happening. It didn't have all the good news stories about someone's been found, and it, it, it continued to focus on what was happening, the bad side as well as the good side of this disaster. And as the days went by, you could see these two television stations diverging from each other as the government reasserted control. But we could go anywhere. And I remember going to a factory, and I, and I happened to be on this sort of lost little road. And the, I arrived at a factory, and there was a rescue going on. And this was 100 hours into the earthquake. And there was someone alive, and they thought they could get him out. And so I waited. And it's one of the hardest things for a journalist is to wait for something to happen. Um, <clears throat> uh, Think, think, I don't know if you remember the um, 
the, the hostage taking in, in Peru, I think it was, um, and the, uh, the Japanese embassy, and they had to wait for six weeks. That's a long wait. This was, this was two hours. Waiting, waiting, and finally, um, what they did was they, his, his, they cut off one of his legs, sort of from below the knee, and were able to bring him out. And I, I could watch this scene happening. I was able to phone it in, basically, as it happened, to the newspaper, and a, you know, a short little story about watching this man who came out. And a year later, I found him. It was, it was actually, because I'd had his name at the time, I was able to track him down. And he'd had an he, his, his tale was slightly extraordinary in that it was the 100th hour. They really weren't expecting to find anybody else alive. And the television, one of the television stations organized a reunion with the soldier who had been in, in this building under the rubble with him, holding his hand, trying to keep him alive while they cut off his leg. <coughs> and so I went to see him in his home, which was still cracked, you know, had, had cracks in it from the earthquake. And I remember him coming out onto the road limping, he had a, a prosthetic leg, to flag down our car because we had difficulty finding him. And just being able to sit and talk to him was something that you sort of almost couldn't have dreamt of 20 years ago in China. This was a little boy who I saw rescued on the second day of the earthquake. And I wanted to do his story a year later. We found his school, he'd moved schools, we called the school, and they said, no, he's not here. He won't be here when you come. He's going to Hong Kong. I just didn't believe that. So I went to the school, just walked into the school, found his class, and of course he was just in class, but they were so afraid of a foreign journalist coming to speak to him on what was a really good news story that they tried, that they basically bare-faced lies. He's not, even in the, he's not even in China, he's in Hong Kong. And I insisted that his teacher stay with us while we spoke to him. We didn't ask him any difficult questions. This wasn't a political story about, you know, have the schools been badly built? He's 10. He doesn't know anything about schools. All you wanted to hear was his personal story. And it's, sort of, it's such a pity that you have to fight through this sort of bureaucracy and lies when you're trying to find a good story. Um, foreign reporters, I think, when we're covering China, you're always seen as the enemy who's coming in to find something bad. Oops, I've lost a picture. Um, I did have a picture of the little girl. This was, this was the Olympics opening ceremony. Um, and this wasn't such a, a great story. So there was one little girl who wasn't quite so pretty, and she sang the song. And this was the girl who in fact appeared on stage lip-syncing like Beyonce recently. Um, and Xi Jinping, who was in charge, Xi Jinping is the new leader of China, and he was in charge of the Olympics, and he said, she's the one who's going to do it. And of course, it did all come out. And it's one of the things that people remember about the Olympics, because it was such a silly piece of fakery that, that didn't need to happen. Um, but that, that's... Uh, you know, you, this, this was the great story of the Olympics. It was, it was amazing. It was incredible. The games were a success. Um, that wasn't quite such a successful moment. Um, this was the, all the minorities bringing in the, the flag of China. Except all these children were Han Chinese. None of them were ethnic minorities. <laughs> um, and of course, people do find out. It, it, it was, a, it was a, a marvelous tale of two weeks of success and sport. 
And China even allowed parks to be opened where you was, they were going to allow people to hold protests. You had to apply. And of course, as journalists, you know, you want to report protests. That's what we do. We report what people are, are thinking, people who feel differently. Um, and there were a, a couple of people who tried to stage a protest. And the government was so, seemed to be so afraid of these people that they sentenced them both to a year of re-education re through labor. One of them is half blind, and one of them can't walk. <laughs> what was there to be afraid of? So all the, you know, we all rushed down and interviewed them, and they wanted to protest about their house uh, having been demolished. Another fascinating story, and it's, it's how um, China can shoot itself in the foot. If, if they hadn't stopped this, and stopped us reporting this, it wouldn't have been such a, a big story, but it ended up being a fabulous story because they were happy to talk. They did, given their age, they had nothing to lose. Um, they ended up not going to a labor camp. <laughs> um, but it was, it was one of those sort of extraordinary moments when you're handed the story on a plate due to the ham-fistedness of the people, the government that you're dealing with. Um, which isn't always the case, but uh, as you've seen so far, it, it certainly does seem to help journalists. This is um, talking of <coughs> uh, the government. This is uh, Ai Weiwei. And this word is, um, it's, it's a, what does it mean? Uh, it's meant grass, mud, and horse. Well, yes, that's one, one way to, to translate it. <laughs> Otherwise, it's a really strong swear word. And it's, 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 it's a, a F word. Right. Yeah. Um, and it, it became a, um, a sort of meme on the internet because it, it was a way to, to criticize censorship of the internet. But grass, um, mud horse is also sort of a word for llama. So what he's holding is a little fluffy llama. And so it's this playing with words that, that, that the Chinese language is so, so wonderful for. Um, and this was part of um, a protest that, of using words on the, on the internet, on the social media, which is another very interesting story for us to, relate, to, to report, is how Chinese use social media to get around censorship issues. Um, we, as foreign journalists, are not, are not censored. This is um, someone who has been censored. And I wanted to talk a little bit about um, how difficult it is to speak to sources. So what you can speak to Ai Weiwei. He's not afraid. He's very happy to talk. I think he probably, to some extent, understands that actually by making yourself a center of publicity, you're protecting yourself. Um, but from you know, people who are not so famous, it's, it's a much greater risk to take that if you look for publicity, if you speak to foreign journalists, not even to look for publicity, but just to get across your message, it's very risky because there can be retribution. And of course, that's something that as foreign journalists, we, it's, our, it's our job to cover that sort of retribution. So this is uh, Liu Xiaobo, who won the Nobel Peace Prize, Peace Prize in 2009, 2010? Uh, 2010. And uh, this was in the 1990s at my flat in Beijing. Um, I'd known him since the 1980s, and you'll see an earlier picture of him. But this is something that is very 
um, interesting to, to cover in China because he really wasn't anybody until he won the Nobel Peace Prize. Nobody really knew him. He wasn't um, a particular, he, he was known as an intellectual, but he wasn't particularly famous above any other intellectuals, you know, nothing like Ai Weiwei or, and in, in, in fact, you know, he's quite a, um, he's quite a sort of foul-mouthed, bad-mannered person. I, I happen to be very close to him, but um, he's not someone who's great for publicity. I mean, he's a very, very brilliant man. And I remember having a conversation with him that's a, um, in, in, at that time in the late 90s, and, and he'd just come out from house arrest for about a year. And I said, why, why are you going on with this? Don't you think you just want to have a normal life? I mean, you're going to continue this? You know, you did it in the 80s, we're in the 90s. And he said, no, I've got, you know, I've got nothing else left to lose, so I'm going to continue to do this. And this is, I have to follow my principles. And that's one of the things that I loved about reporting from China, is you actually got to speak to an extraordinary number of people who were really concerned for the future of their country, who were, con who were engaged in intellectual debate, who were engaged in political debate, and who were not afraid to do so. And I think in other countries, most other countries, you don't get that level of, of commitment, but also that intellectual, the, the, that, the, the exchange of ideas that you have with people like that. Um, he was not a proponent necessarily of what, of what one regards as Western-style democracy. He's got more complicated views about it. But fascinating to cover these people who do represent probably a very, very tiny part of what is going on in China. Then you have to try to cover the Chinese leaders. Now this, this is Deng Xiaoping, who's, who was very easy to cover because this was a man of enormous charisma. He always had something to say. He would take this kind of opportunity um, in the Great Hall of the People, you'd have the sort of, they'd meet visiting leaders and they would allow foreign journalists two minutes as a photo op and you'd go in, the photographer's TV and a text reporter and record anything he had to say because he chose, he used those two minutes to give his message to the rest, to his country, to the world. Um, and we didn't have mobile phones in those days. So you'd record, you'd go up to the loudspeaker, you'd put your tape recorder there, you'd record it, and then on the way back in the car, you'd be replaying this tape and listening to his very strong Sichuan accent and trying to work out what on earth incredibly <laughs> important thing it was he, that he'd said. And he said it with lots of, greatly engaged. This is what we have, what we had, until recently it's perhaps a little bit less charisma. And this is the new leadership. It's very hard to make this interesting for the rest of the world. So a lot of time, what people in the West are interested in is this. They want these stories, lots of these stories, more of these stories. Exactly, see, there you are. <laughs> um, it's a fabulous story. Everyone wants to read about pandas. And it is another risk about China is reporting the cliche. There are good panda stories, but there can be too many panda stories. Uh, this is another huge issue in China that actually was, was possible to report. This is about the demolition. I've referred to that. And publishing houses in China is something that's really, really close to people's heart. And for my mind, something that you, when you're covering China, 
is an issue that could in fact unite people against the party because it's, it's your money, it's your livelihood, possibly even more than corruption. So this is someone who didn't want to get knocked down. This is someone who set himself on fire and in fact died rather than um, be knocked down. And this is a woman who, uh, who set herself on fire and jumped off her house. It's a very emotive issue. And we try to get close to these people and talk to them. And, and people are much more willing to talk because uh, it, the stories don't get out so much into the Chinese media. This is, I just want to show you some pictures of a, a really great news story that is a simply fabulous story. And this is in April 1989. And it's just one of those stories that gives and gives and continues to give and continues to affect the way you cover China because you can't go into Tiananmen Square as a reporter anymore. Not since this. But it's, these are extraordinary scenes that I just wanted to show you. At the end of this, the demonstrations, these four hunger strikers joined, including this jam, who just can't keep out of trouble. And I remember being asked by students, do you think the army is going to come in? And I said, well, yes. Um, look at your own history. Oh, you don't understand China. Yeah, the army came in. It wasn't all good for the army. That's a soldier. But that's, it's, you know, it's one of those stories that, that the Communist Party is stuck with having to cope with. And we'll see what happens. And, and you know, you reported the anniversary, you report what's happened to those people. <laughs> and I don't want to completely ignore the economy, which is something that we do try to report, do try to get access to. Um, this is a factor that's been in the news a lot, and which is starting, it's, strictly speaking, it's a Taiwanese factory, but um, they're starting to give us a bit more access to it. This is a story that is a good story, really good news story, you know, reporting how the enormous progress in China, the infrastructure, the investment, the growth of this economy that really the, at a speed the world's never seen, and, and how it can sometimes go wrong. And how you might want to actually, once again, tell people what's happened instead of burying the railway carriage and then it, it gets found out. It's all over Weibo. It's very embarrassing for the government, and it, it's reported. I know that I'm coming to the end of my time. That was a bit more on. Um, this is another news, complicated news story, which was the um, uh, the riot in Urumqi, which in which a very large number of people were killed, and they were they were pretty much all Han Chinese. Um, as happened in, in Tibet, in fact. And, and, but here, you know, we had extraordinary access, and the government had learnt from Tibet, had learnt from all that bad, bad publicity, and they let us go in, and gave us an enormous amount of freedom to move around, freedom to get the story. When I arrived, this was happening, which was Han Chinese trying to take revenge. It was quite tense. <clears throat> this was a, a Uyghur woman. We, the Uyghurs are the minorities who live there, and she became quite well known because she sort of stopped these APCs, armed personnel carriers, from moving into a, a Uyghur neighborhood. And I found her and interviewed her and spent a lot of time with her. And, and it was marvelous to have that opportunity because you can tell China in a more balanced way. Um, and once again, this is another story where you have someone that the Chinese can blame and who you also will you know, try to interview. This is um, a woman called Rabia Kadir, who used to be a businesswoman in Xinjiang and um, went abroad when she got into trouble for corruption. <clears throat> this is something that is really very hard to cover. And this is the army 
we have very little access to covering the army in China, um, which is sort of an extraordinary pity because you don't really get to grips with an issue that the world is very, very interested in, which is, you know, what's happening with, is, is this a military that's about to um, take on the world? Well, China has re recently launched its first aircraft carrier. There's just one thing missing. <laughs> China has, in fact, landed its first plane on an aircraft carrier, but I think that it, it's quite difficult, to, once again, to find a balanced way to report a military that still has quite a long way to go. Most armies don't fight in plimsolls, in these sort of uh, tennis shoes with rub rubber soles. Um, which is still very widespread in the Chinese army. And, and it would be nice to have more access, I think, to something like this. It's one of the many aspects of China to which we don't have enough access. I was going to talk a little bit about sources because it's very hard to get to know people. When I first arrived in the 80s, I just thought, oh my God, this is a country of a billion people. How am I going to get to know anybody? It does happen. And there are people who are willing to talk, like this man who's a lawyer, who's represented um, Ai, Ai Weiwei, this is another man who, who's also a lawyer who tried to get into sort of um, local politics and was uh, eradicated from it. Uh, this is another chap who sort of set himself up as a, um, an analyst. He was sentenced to 13 years after 1989 as a behind-the-scenes organizer. But he's also a very old friend who's you know, much more willing to talk and to explain what's going on in the politics. Now, this is the earthquake, and this is just how close you ever get to the Chinese government. So, I'm here, and Wen Jiabao is, is here. And you know, you're, you're speaking to him through a megaphone, and he's as far away as you are. I mean, I've, I've actually interviewed him, but other than that, you never get that close to a senior leader. And it's an enormous pity, because there are lots of... We weren't going to attack him. We're just journalists in the middle of Sichuan. Um, his security was, he's surrounded by the army, surrounded by security. Nothing bad is going to happen. He could have actually talked to us in a much more personal way, and you're going to get a better story. He's going to get better coverage. Um, I thought I'd talk about a bit of rich and poor if you're interested. Corruption, of course. This is the um, head of the Food and Drug Administration who was, in fact, executed. I can come back to that. This is another story about people who escape execution. You all know this story. Neil Haywood. Um, and I think you know, we're all waiting to see what happens to Bo Xi Lai, um, who presumably will go on trial relatively soon. This was his last time he met journalists. Looks pretty cool, right? He's <laughs> <Isn't this? laughs> arrested, you know, two days later. Um, and this was the man who gave away the whole story, uh, the policeman Wang Lijun. And I am going to finish. So, who does a foreign journalist most want to interview in China? <laughs> That's Yao Chen, who has 31 million followers on Weibo. <laughs> Most in the world. Good, thank you very much. <laughs>